the journey they were on it was, it was a long one. The travelers were, were weary. They had faced hardships of, of many, many kinds, life-threatening dangers. And here on the precipice of all hopes and dreams, they now must walk through this long, foreboding hallway whose, whose end was this vaulted sanctum of the unknown. And horrifyingly beautiful was the, the, the billowing smoke from these flames that were rising all around them, filling this vast expanse. And then there was this ominous, this chest-quivering voice that just came, came across like a thunder-clapping sound. And the figure that was before them, it was both bright and beautiful, and yet somehow translucent in appearance. And just when it seemed all too frightening and all too magnificent for them to endure, off to the side, a little dog pulled away a curtain to reveal a man (laughs) pushing little buttons and pulling levers. The great and powerful Oz was not so great after all. And you know, that's the way things seem to be in our day and age. And throughout history, we prop up these people as examples of human strength, of human morality, of intelligence, of integrity, of authenticity, only to eventually just be completely let down by them. Because after all, they're merely human. Who can you trust? Who is it that you can look to? Wouldn't you just love to have a leader and you can say, finally, this is the person. This is the one who's going to make a difference. Who we can look up to and rely upon. You know, we're not the only ones who have been disappointed by leadership. Second Chronicles 26 tells a tragic tale of disappointment. It tells of a man who took his father's throne at the ripe old age of 16. Can you imagine? We're told that he did right in the eyes of the Lord. For 52 years, he built up Israel's defenses. He led them successfully into battle. He brought them an extended period of just peace and blessing and prosperity. Verse 15 of 2 Chronicles 26 says, His fame spread far. This guy stood out from so many other Kings. He was a cut above. He was the man who was revered, who was trusted, who was loved by his people. But King Uzziah's glory days would not last forever. We're told in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah, the priest, went in after him. Azariah didn't go alone. It says, with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. 
And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Uzziah's response is important. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out, because the Lord had struck him, and King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. The king of Israel, he was powerful. He was honorable. He was a God-fearing man. He thought that he and God were good. But apparently he forgot one thing. He forgot one thing. He forgot that no matter how powerful you were, no matter how close you thought your relationship with God to be, you don't disregard the holiness of God. You don't disregard the holiness of God. There were very specific, very explicit, strict rules that God had laid out for how He was supposed to be worshipped. Who could enter that sacred temple space where He dwelt among His people? And King Uzziah, he found out the hard way how foolish it was to put God to the test. Uzziah died. And when he died, he left, it left a vacuum in Israel's leadership. The man whom these people had grown to love and, and appreciate and trust, he's gone. Who do we look to now? Who do we trust? Who do we look to when others have let us down? It was in the same year that another man, a man of God, came face to face with the answer in Isaiah 6, verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. With two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. What an awesome experience this must have been. I can't I can barely imagine to find yourself in the temple, a magnificent place in and of itself. It was an enormous chamber, extravagantly appointed with fine gold from floor to ceiling, and that alone would have been awe-inspiring. But then to have your eyes opened 
to see the majesty of God Himself enthroned in glory. To, 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 to take in the enormity of His robe that is just spilling out in all different directions, filling this space, consuming it. So behold, these, these brilliant, powerful, six-winged creatures hovering in place on either side to hear them call out in this earthquake-inducing, smoke-conjuring declaration. This must have just been completely overwhelming. Terrifyingly wonderful that moment must have been. And what was it that these seraphim, these angels proclaimed? They said, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, I don't know of anyone who explains this better than theologian and pastor R.C. Sproul. In his book, Holiness of God, a book that, that changed my life as I read it down in Dana Point Harbor on a lawn chair in one sitting, he explains there's tremendous ex- is significance when something is repeated in the Hebrew language. To repeat a word was a literary device. It was a way that you, ex- you gave emphasis to something. And we have different devices that allow us to do that, right? We can put something in bold or italics, or uh, we can use quotation marks, we can use capital letters. Sometimes in my notes I make things really, really big so they stand out so I don't forget that one thing. And the ancient writers, they had tools that they used to emphasize things as well. And one of those tools of emphasis was repetition. And we see that in in places like when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. And by repeating that word, he's making it clear, this is something very important that I'm about to say. You better pay attention. But Sproul points out that it's one thing to see a word repeated. But it's a whole other thing when you see a word appear three times in succession. That's when you know that whatever is being said is of the utmost, the most absolute highest significance. He writes this, Only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says God is holy, holy, holy. Not that He is merely holy, or holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. Praise God for that. It does say that He is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. That is pretty dramatic, right? It's incredible. And what do we mean when we say that God is holy? The word holy means separate. It means set apart. So to say that God is holy is to say that He's separate from everything else. He's, he's transcendent. He's above us. He's beyond us. He's completely distinct from us. Sproul pointed out that there's something about the way that God's holiness is emphasized that sets it apart from all the other characteristics 
of God. So more than His mercy, more than His justice, more than His faithfulness, more than anything else, God's holiness is a really big deal. And that's because this characteristic of God's holiness, it says something about every other characteristic of God. His holiness says something about His love. It says something about His justice, about His wrath, about all these different aspects of God. All of these other things, God's holiness says, these things are perfect. His love, His power, His justice, all of these things that that we know God to be, they are set apart totally on a different level from what we know justice to be what we know love to be, what we know power to be. You and I might be loving people, but God's love, it just completely blows our love away. Our love doesn't even come close to God's love because God's love is holy. It's set apart. So holiness says something about everything else that God is. But someone might ask, well, if holiness means that God is completely different and way better than anything else, then why do we sometimes call other things holy? Like holy days, or holy ground, or holy cow. There's a difference difference in what holiness means when it refers to God, and when it refers to other things. I could say that my toothbrush is holy. And it is, in a sense, or at least I want it to be. I found recently that uh, one of my daughters, I won't mention her name, but um, my toothbrush should be holy. But as sacred as my toothbrush may be, as sacred as it is to me, there are limits to its sanctity. It's separate insofar as I keep it in a particular place. And I let people know, let me tell you, I have let people know, do not use this toothbrush. This one's mine. But that doesn't make it completely holy. Its location isn't completely separate. It sits on the counter right next to my wife's toothbrush. It's separate, but not completely separate. It resides under the same roof, even the same room as so many other things in the house. And it's not completely separate in its nature either, is it? Because it's designed by by human beings. And it's manufactured out of stuff that other things in the house are manufactured out of that same exact same stuff. In the same factory as all kinds of other toothbrushes. The uniqueness of my toothbrush, it only goes so far. It's only so holy, so sacred. Its holiness is is limited. It's limited by nature, it's limited by location, it's limited by purpose. I can tell you exactly what the holiness of my toothbrush means and what it looks like, and I can tell you its limitations. But when I look at God's holiness, it's very, very different. The Bible refers to a lot of things as holy, as separate. It refers to 
things that have been devoted to God. We already mentioned holy ground. It mentions holy assemblies, holy Sabbaths, holy unions, uh, a holy city, holy scriptures, holy hands, a holy kiss, holy faith, all kinds of different holy things. And they're set apart and they're devoted to God or for a special purpose. But there's a difference between these holy things and God who is holy, holy, holy. When we apply the word holy to God, we can say what He's set apart from. I can say that God is holy from this this pulpit that's made out of wood here. He's totally separate. I can say that God is holy compared to me. He's totally separate to me. But then, if I try to wrap my head around how separate... Or how different He is. How much better, how much more magnificent He is. Well, I just ran out of words. I ran out of words. I ran out of thoughts. I'm completely, I don't have any adequate explanation for how, the degree of God's holiness. How distinct is God from His creation? He's not just distinct. He's infinitely distinct. It just keeps going and going and going. If we try to talk about how good God is, Well, we can't do really anything more than give examples of how we've seen His goodness. How He's shown His goodness to us in our lives. We can talk about how beautiful this world is. We can go down to the the water and we can say, God is just, uh, His goodness is amazing. He gave us this incredible view, this incredible ocean, or this beautiful sky. We can look at all God's creation and say, wow, God is good. We can look at the the marvelous reality of His love and His goodness in Jesus Christ, right? And we can say, wow, that God would love me so much that He would send Christ to take my place even while I was still in rebellion against Him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is good, isn't He? It's amazing. But we can't put His goodness on any sort of scale. We can't measure how perfect He is because He's limitless. He says in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. If I ask how utterly different and utterly superior God is from the rest of His creation, I'm going to embark, you know, I'm going to embark on an unending journey. The word holiness is, I don't know if this is a a, a scholarly term or not, but in my mind, holiness is a trajectory word. Because when it says that God is holy, 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 it points me in a direction, on a journey that I will never get to the end of that. It's kind of like a vehicle that propels us towards this spectacular otherness of God which we'll never be able to fully realize, never be able to fully grasp or describe. If we went warp speed in search of the end of God's perfections, the end of His distinctiveness from us, well, we're never going to get there. We'll just keep going and going and going. That's what holiness does. It points us to the ultimate supremacy of God. And it's found in God alone. You and I will never be able to fully understand how good God really is. Why? Because He's holy. We'll never know how loving, how powerful, how awesome He is. Because He's holy. 
But just because God's holiness means that we'll never fully grasp it, well, that doesn't mean we can never know anything of it. We can know something about God, right? That's what Paul's wrestling with in his prayers for the Ephesians. Remember when we were back in Ephesians? In Ephesians chapter 3, he prays this prayer. He says, he says, he bows his knees before the Father that they may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. He's praying that they may come to know how big all this stuff is, how wonderful God is, and then he says, oh, by the way, it surpasses all knowledge. (laughs) I want you to know what cannot be fully known, but I want you to know more of it. And you'll never get bored of it, because it just keeps going on and on and on. I want you to know more. I want you to know what can never be fully known. English theologian John Stott wrote, Christ's love is as unknowable as His riches are unsearchable. Doubtless, we shall spend eternity exploring His inexhaustible riches of grace and love. I love that. And I long for that. And I hope you do too. We're familiar with the Supreme Court. Some of us wish we weren't. We're familiar with something called a burrito supreme. Some of us, again, wish we weren't. How supreme is God supreme? God supreme is infinitely supreme. Two is greater than one. Two hundred is greater still. Two trillion is incredibly different than the number one. But how Different is the highest number possible from one. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about God's holiness. It's the kind of thing we'll never be able to fully wrap our heads around. It's the kind of holy that even the angelic beings, those who are designed to exist in the presence of God. Notice all these wings that they have? They're, they're, some wings are covering them, their faces. We can't even, we can't, we're angelic beings. We're designed to be in the presence of God. We can't even look. Even they need to conceal themselves in the midst of His brilliance and beauty. That's the kind of holy that's very mention causes the earth to shake. You know what it's like for the earth to shake? <laughs> what Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel 2.2 was dead on. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. God says in Isaiah 40 verse 25, to whom will... To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like Him, says the Holy One. The answer is no one. You can't compare Him to anyone. He is who He is. He's not the wrinkled old wannabe hiding behind the curtain and pulling and pushing levers 
to try and convince you how great and powerful He is. He's holy in the most extreme sense of the word, and He's holy through and through. Where do you turn? Who do you trust? Who do you look up to when others have let you down? Well, you turn to the Holy One. You turn to the Holy One. You acknowledge the One who is superior over all others. Unlike other kings, this king is completely unique. Unlike other leaders, he is utterly perfect, unwaveringly constant, unceasingly good. He's the one you turn to. He's the one we should have been relying upon all along. He's the one that you give everything else up for. He's the one you you hang all your hopes and dreams. You hang them up so that you can be with Him, enjoy Him, and worship Him. Or do you? Do you really want to do that? When Isaiah found himself in the presence of this holy God, you might think that he would have just been completely overwhelmed with joy. This is the greatest thing ever. This was Israel's one and only real hope. Yeah, we had a great king, and and that was a good run, but he was so disappointing in the end. And now we've got God. He's, He's the source of their blessing. This is a cause for celebration. I mean, jump to your feet, lift your hands, strike the band. Let's go, light the fireworks. Let's praise this mighty, awesome God, the only one worthy of praise. But we don't see the praise team tuning up. We don't see that. We don't see a man who's just amped and ready to worship God. What we see is quite the opposite. Verse 3 of Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. Woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When you might expect to hear shouts of praise, just extreme jubilation, the first words that escape Isaiah's lips are, Woe is me. Woe is me. As he's confronted with the holiness of God, he can do nothing other than to speak a curse Upon himself. Woe is me. Now, woe is me does not mean shame on you. Isaiah, bad. You're not very good. Shame on you for shame. As if, you know, he wants to prove to God, see, God, I I realize how good you are. No, 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 no. Woe is me is a pronouncement of doom. Pronouncement of doom. The Old Testament prophets, they were known to speak woe on behalf of God, declaring doom on these cities, that, on nations, on individuals even, who were deserving of God's punishment. Zephaniah 2.5, Woe to you inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan. 
land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. Even Jesus used this curse when He said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. A pronouncement of woe was a terrible thing. But something interesting happens in Isaiah 6. Here we see Isaiah pronouncing this this judgment on himself, declaring, God should judge me right now. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. Other translations, they use words like ruined, or I'm undone. What he's actually saying here is that his entire existence is just being rendered. It's being torn apart. Whatever feeling of put-togetherness he felt before walking around these other imperfect people, and Isaiah was a good guy. And he could have walked around amongst all these other sinners and said, yeah, at least I'm not like that guy over there. But any sense, any feeling, any sensation of that was just completely removed from him. In a single moment, it's completely destroyed. And remember, Isaiah is a prophet of God. He's a prophet of God. He's not one of the vulgar crowd. He's a cut above. The people looked up to him. They respected him. They admired him. Sproul says that he was considered by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation. And instantly, every ounce of self-esteem, every molecule of pride went up in that smoke-filled room. He was a man completely shattered, completely destroyed, disintegrating on the temple floor. Why? Why? Because that's what happens when you encounter the Holy One. That's what happens. You fall apart. When the curtain was pulled back and the wizard was exposed, everyone, the the tin man, the lion, uh, what's her name? Dorothy. They all breathed a sigh of relief. Oh, he's not the terrible. He's not the all-powerful. He's just this old man over here. Oh, thank goodness. Not nearly as intimidating as we first thought. But when the veil is lifted to expose the reality of God's holiness, Isaiah is completely wrecked. He's not who I thought he was. He is far more. That's because God's holiness exposes what is unholy. That's why we're terrified. We seek God's holiness and we come to any, any experience of it and our unholiness is exposed, completely laid bare. The revelation of His limitless perfection, His absolute purity, it just cuts right through our feeble attempts at goodness and our own sinfulness just lies naked there before Him. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from His sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. When you experience even the smallest 
measure of God's holiness, the reality of your, your insignificance, your powerlessness, it just becomes apparent. And even those trophies that you hold up of all the good things that you did, they're shown for what they really are. Isaiah 64, 6, we've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Put that in the incinerator. I don't even want to look. I don't want to smell it. Get it out of here. The brighter the light shines, the darker and more sinful our fallen hearts are revealed to be. We like to think that God will overlook some of the wrong things that we have done, just like we overlook the wrong things that other people done. Sometimes we'll turn a blind eye to things that people do, right? And often the thinking that goes behind it is, well, yeah, they're doing that, but man, I know I've done a lot worse, so I, you know, okay, let, let's just let that go. Nobody's perfect, right? And we think, who am I to judge these people? I've done plenty worse. And in a way, we're right. The stains are on our track record. They're undeniable. We're no better than anybody else. I'm no better than anybody else. And not only that, we don't like to think the sins that we commit, they're, that are, they're actually really bad. When we think of sin, we think of really bad stuff. We think the thing, of the things that criminals do, those people who are locked up. More, when we think of our mistakes, well, we think of them as mistakes, or their defects, or their inadequacies. And we like to think that God is a little bit like us. I certainly wouldn't condemn others for a little white lie. Why would God do that? But the reality is God is not like us. He's not like us. He's totally distinct from us. He says in Psalm 50, verse 21, These things you have done, and I have been silent, you thought I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. See, there's not the slightest hint of blemish on his track record. His morality is totally superior than our own. And in the light of his righteousness, of his holiness, even the slightest little tiny speck can't be tolerated. Proverbs 15:26 says, "The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord." The thoughts Nahum 1.2 says, The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries, keeps wrath for His enemies. And because God is holy, well, He's totally justified in doing it. When Isaiah came face to face with the holy, when he knew he was done for, the gig was up, the game was over. There was no fooling God at this point. No fooling God into thinking that He had anything good in and of Himself, inside of Himself. He knew that there have been words that had come out of His mouth that weren't so good. He knew He lived amongst the people who spoke words that were dishonoring to God and dishonoring to God's creation. He knew that they deserved punishment for those words. He knew that He deserved punishment for His words. And so He doesn't wait for God to pronounce judgment he pronounces it on himself immediately woe is me i'm lost i'm a man of unclean lips and i dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips where do you turn who do you trust who can you look up to when all others have let you down you turn to the holy one you acknowledge the one who's superior to all others really 
Is that where you should go? Because if you go there, you're not feeling really good about yourself. That's not good for your self-esteem. What we've seen in Isaiah 6, when, 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 when you go to the Holy One, that's far more like suicide than it is salvation. But there's more to this story. Something extraordinary happens next. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah completely falls to pieces on the floor. And that's when something incredible happens. One of these seraphim, one of these angels, sails down to Isaiah's level. And in his hand are are tongs. They're tongs gripping a fiery hot coal. This thing is so hot, even the angels can't touch this. Check out how Sproul describes what happened next. The seraph pressed the white hot coal to the lips of the prophet and seared them. The lips, he says, are are one of the most sensitive parts of human flesh. The meeting point of the kiss. Here Isaiah felt the holy flame burning his mouth. The acrid smell of burning flesh filled his nostrils. But that sensation was dulled by the excruciating pain of the heat. This was a severe mercy, a painful act of cleansing. Isaiah's wound was being cauterized. The dirt in his mouth was being burned away. He was refined by holy fire. At the moment of abject terror, when Isaiah was beyond a shadow of a doubt in his mind that he was done for, That's when this holy God displays His supreme hatred of sin, and yet at the same time, His supreme and absolutely astonishing mercy. It's incredible. Yes, the answer is yes. We can and we should look to the Holy One. And though we lie completely exposed in the light of His beauty and His holiness and His limitless perfection, though we are exposed as children of wrath, people who should be punished, fully deserving of righteous judgment, if we humbly acknowledge our sin before Him, we have nothing to fear. Why? Because of what Isaiah 57 tells us. Because of the One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, dwells in the high and holy places. He says that He also dwells with Him who is of contrite heart, contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite The holiness of God, yeah, it exposes our sin, but the holiness of God extends mercy to those who acknowledge their sin and look to Him for salvation. 
He loves those who see themselves in the light of His holiness and they just acknowledge their brokenness. He loves to revive and breathe life into their souls. Like He did for Isaiah, He loves to blot out their sin and wash them clean of all their unrighteousness. We're told in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful. He does this. This is what He does. He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's in this forgiveness that we see another picture of the holiness of God displayed. God's hatred for sin is so great. His holy justice is so absolute. And yet His mercy is so limitless that He sent Jesus Christ to suffer on our behalf for our sake. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What kind of being is this? What kind of entity is so committed to His justice, so passionate about the sanctity of His own name, so diametrically opposed to sin, and yet so merciful that He would spare the sinful by carrying out the punishment for their sin on His own Son. This is ridiculous. What kind of entity does that? Only one who is holy. But not just holy. One who is holy, holy, holy. And in Jesus, we see a picture of God's holiness. We see it put on display. John writes, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We end with this. In Jesus, the Holy One is revealed to us. He's revealed. The living Word, the Son of God who existed for all eternity, one of the persons in the Godhead, was revealed to the world when He took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the Holy One revealed to meet the Holy One's requirements. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's no getting around that. It has to happen. And so if God is going to forgive us our sin, blood has to be shed. And so in God's justice, He says, this, this sentence needs to be carried out. Well, the Holy One was revealed so that the Holy One could satisfy God's requirements. 1 John 2.2 says He is the propitiation for our sin. He's the only one who could satisfy God's need for justice, the requirements for sin, by dying the death that He died on the cross. He paid for it. And He did this in order to make the unholy holy as we humbly acknowledge our sin in light of God's holiness and trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ, we are washed clean. And all of this He has done so that we might expose and enjoy the glory of the Holy One forever. He's done this so that in 1 Peter, that you may proclaim the excellencies of of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. If you're looking for a leader to come around that you can really get behind and support and have faith in, I've got good news for you. He's already come. He's been there from the very beginning. He's not safe. 
He's not saved by a long shot. Even the slightest encounter with the reality of His holiness is going to throw you to the floor. It'll expose every awful thing that lurks inside of you. And if you're like me, there is a lot of awfulness in here. He's not safe, but He is good. He loves it when we see ourselves in light of His holiness and we humbly acknowledge our brokenness before Him. He loves to revive our hearts, breathe life into our souls. And like He did for Isaiah, for the sake of His great holy name, He loves to blot out your sin and mine. Do you know Him? Do you trust Him? Have you confessed your sin to Him like Isaiah and say, woe's me. Have you had Him wash you clean as you looked to Jesus and you trusted in what He did on that cross? Have you let Him blow you completely away by His holy?